0: This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center, on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So nice to be uh, here uh, this morning. It uh, for those of you who are not joining us in person, it's a little bit of a crazy. Crazy day up here, Uh, very, very strong winds, some rain. Um, Really have a sense of the the changing of the season. And uh, please come in. For me, this kind of weather always just reminds me that uh, the year is coming to a close. Uh, And I think for many of us, it can be a sort of hectic time towards the end of the year. Also a time when maybe we're inclined to reflect a bit more on our life. What's going well and what's not going well. It's a time I often find myself thinking about, about balance. Uh, Balance in my life, balance in my relationships. So I thought I'd talk about that a little bit uh, this morning. I always like to go back uh, to the example of, of Buddha himself. Uh, But in the particular case of, uh, of relationships, uh, Buddha was kind of a terrible example. Uh, he abandoned his wife and, and, uh, child, uh, when he decided to pursue a spiritual life. And in a way he, uh, He dealt with what we often think of today as work-life balance uh, by abandoning both work and family life. He felt that for him, uh, the only path that made sense was, was this monastic path. of not, uh, not earning money, not having a family, focusing exclusively on his practice. I often think when we reflect on this kind of monastic path, and, and it's available uh, still, there are people who follow it all over the world, we tend to think of the monastic path as quite difficult. Uh, And we're often impressed, maybe, with people who are able to make those sacrifices to devote themselves entirely to the practice. Uh, But Buddha didn't see it that way at all. Uh, He thought uh, of monastic life as easy. And what was difficult was trying to combine practice with all these other things in our life. He talked about the monastic life as like an open space, but that trying to practice as a householder was like confinement. And, you know, I think it can feel like that sometimes. Maybe it feels like that to you sometimes. But I do think that this This area of balance is one place where we can strive uh, to do better than Buddha. From the beginning, Buddha understood that not everyone uh, would follow his path, become a monk or a nun. He always had followers who were were lay people, who were householders like us uh, as well. In fact, his very first followers were these two uh, traveling salesmen that just happened to be coming through a nearby village shortly after his enlightenment. They heard about this fully enlightened being who was sitting under a tree outside, outside of the town. And they gathered up some sweets and other offerings and went to pay their respects. And even towards the end of Buddha's life, when he would recount his great students, he still remembered those first two lay people who came and met him and experienced his presence, but then went back to their householder life. And Buddha continued to teach people who did not become monastics and taught everyone from royalty to slaves. He was always clear that anyone in any of these situations could find awakening. You didn't have to give up all these other responsibilities. But Finding this balance in our life, finding room for practice and everything else is certainly not easy. These days, people talk a lot about work-life balance, but I don't really like that phrase because it really suggests that there's just these two things that we need to balance in our life. And I think the reality is just much more complicated than that. We're always balancing many, many things perhaps work, family, friends, sleep, exercise, food, meditation. And each of these can be, can be a challenge. And that challenge can shift over the course of our life. And making these trade-offs in time is difficult in part because where we spend our time really does make a difference. When I was first uh, learning about Zen when I was in college, uh, it was actually a good friend of mine, Bill, Uh, who gave me my first book on Zen, and we used to meditate together some. And at the same time that we were learning about Zen, we were both learning about this uh, game, Go, uh, that's also quite popular in Japan. And in the years that followed my friend, Bill, really pursued Go very seriously. Uh, Whereas I, never really did. But I pursued Zen more seriously, and he did not. And now, must be 30 years later, Bill was very close to being a master at Go, uh, and I'm not much better than I was when we first started. And I think if I look back, it wasn't obvious back then that one of us or the other had more natural talent. But Bill put in the time and I didn't. And this happens all over in our life. Uh, As I mentioned, I decided to pursue Zen more seriously. I ended up getting ordained. Uh, practicing here at the temple uh, but it took me about 22 years to formally uh, complete my Zen training uh, and that's partly that Zen is hard uh, but it's also that I wasn't always a great student uh, I also had a job and a wife and raised two kids and uh, And that took time that I could have spent practicing, studying, coming up here. When my kids were very small, I was the one who would wake up with them uh, early in the morning, which really cut into my meditation time. And as hard as I tried, I couldn't seem to wake up earlier than them. And so finding this balance between all these different parts of my life always took a lot of effort. And certainly I know other students who seem to progress more quickly than I did. But I guess in the end I felt I progressed quickly enough. And I think the balance for each of us will always look different. Your balance will look different than mine and it will change over time. Both my kids have left home now, which makes it easier to teach more. I don't feel guilty coming up here on a Sunday like I did when they were home. So that balance has shifted. I think the key to finding this balance, at least for me, uh, has been two things. First, I do think it's easier to find this balance when you're basically happy. If you like the different elements of your life, if you're happy with your work, you're happy with your home life, you're happy with your practice, then you sort of naturally wanna spend as much time on each of these as you can. And it creates a sort of healthy tension because you're choosing between all good choices. On the other hand, if you're miserable in one place or another, or in all the places, It's much harder to be happy with any trade-off. If one part of your life starts to feel like an escape from some other part, I find that often leads to trouble, to resentment of how we're making these choices. But second, and maybe even more important, it's really important to pay attention. As hard as it is to find the right balance, like so much in life, it's almost impossible to just stumble on it by luck. So we have to experiment and we have to pay attention to the results. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to decide what's important and devote our time accordingly. And it's important not to let anyone else make these choices for us, as easy as that sometimes is. In the end, these are our choices to make. And so we pay attention to the results of these choices And if we don't like those results, we make an adjustment, we make a change, and we keep looking for that balance. Buddha taught that all things are subject to karma, which is just the law of cause and effect. And by paying attention, we start to see this law in action. We see the effects of all of our choices. And we won't ever get them all right, but by paying attention, by noticing this cause and effect, we make adjustments, start, finding our way closer to that middle path, to that life of balance. Part of why I'm talking about this today is because I think meditation is relevant for at least two reasons. First, as I've been saying, of course, meditation is one of the things that competes for our time. One of the choices we have to make is how much time to spend in practice. And at times it can feel like a lot. One of the most common questions I get when I teach meditation is how to find the time for it. And it can feel at times like this, just one more chore that we're trying to squeeze in. But second, and the reason I think it's worth, or one reason why I think it's worth making time for meditation is that it's through meditation that we really hone our attention, that we develop that attention muscle that then lets us find that balance. Again, we're not gonna find that balance without paying attention. We're not gonna stumble on it by accident. It's a deliberate choice and we can only inform that choice by paying attention to cause and effect. And what we're doing here in the zendo is learning how to pay attention. We find a, a quiet space. We sit still, we face the wall. In a sense, we try to make it as easy as ourselves as po- on ourselves as possible, reducing as many of these outside distractions as we can. And so in the same way that we might work out at a gym, isolating just one muscle, We try to isolate that skill of attention by just sitting and noticing what happens when we don't try to do anything else. And we hope that developing that skill of attention makes us better able to pay attention to everything else in our life. We sometimes talk about meditation in terms of meditating for 40 minutes or 30 minutes as we did this morning, but you can't really meditate for 40 minutes. You really can only meditate for this moment. You can give your full attention to this moment. And each moment is a fresh chance to meditate again. And again, our hope is that if we can give our full attention to this moment, we can give our full attention to the next moment and the moment after that and the moment after that and to every moment after that, whether we're sitting here or we're having lunch or we're in our service or we're out in the world. and giving our full attention to every moment is really what it means to be fully awake and fully alive. We have a limited time on earth Buddha taught that we may be reborn as animals, as gods, in all different realms, but it's only in this realm, in human form, that we have this opportunity to practice, and we don't know how long we have. We don't know how limited this life will be until it's over. We can't do everything. We have to make choices about how we want to spend this life. But by paying attention to these choices, by paying attention to the cause and effect. We can make each of these moments we have. Count. Thank you. We have some time for questions, either any of you here or anyone online. Uh, before we'll end our formal program and we perhaps have some lunch, does anyone have a question or comment? Yeah,
1: 22 years—was there a moment of definition? You're
0: trying to. Uh, you mean how did I know it was over? <laughs> well. So there is, as we had this morning with these uh, with our service, uh, I'll repeat the question, particularly if you couldn't hear online, asked, uh, I mentioned it took 22 years to complete my training. So how did I know it was completed? It? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, Zen has lots of ceremony and ritual. Um, so there is a, a formal ceremony when your teacher feels that you've uh completed that stage of your training uh, and that's when you exchange a black robe for this brown robe. Um, and so that happened at some point. Um, how my teacher knew I don't I don't know. Um, and of course I, I say I completed my formal training, but I still trained. I uh, I still come here to sit. I still sit every morning. Uh, I often think about the example of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, who still sits several hours every day in meditation, even though I think he's done that every day since he was essentially a toddler. Uh, but must still feel that it's something he it's something meaningful for him. So at some level, Zen training never ends. But we do mark certain stages, let's say.
1: Yes, please. It's just that all these things are going around in my head and I I don't know where to start. Um, I am total novice with the Zen practice. I've spent some time in short time in Buddhist monasteries and things. There was a there was just an appeal. But I come from the Catholic tradition. So there was an attraction for me there. And um, but what I have found in my life is that uh, I haven't achieved where I am. Is that I've been surprised by being where I am. It happens to me. I'm the patient. I'm not the doctor. Uh, so uh, it's a shift for me to think of, in terms of developing a practice of doing this and I need to hear more about that, that we learn and develop the practice. And for me, if I'm in touch with my interior, the practice is going to shape me. I I wouldn't have to look for the practice. I don't, it's like, I don't have to look for the practice. The practice is looking for me. It's already here. And it can happen in a moment at a stoplight. I can, I can have, that interior meditation. Um, but my concern is when I have something that I should move towards, my ego's in there. So how do I know that I am not projecting something that out of a place that is not as whole as the growth I find when I make a mistake? That, that's where my growths have happened coming out, I have to die to something in order to rise out of it. I don't know what's right until I know what's wrong. You know? So you, you can tell my mind is going in several different circles. But I think the main one is I I find that that the practice is finding me. And I'm surprised by it. Mm. So I, that's as much far as I can go. Thank
0: you. thank you. I appreciate it very much your presentation. Thank you. Uh, so I think I mean part of your question I think involved this uh, this issue of effort. Do we have to make effort for our practice, or as you say, does the practice find us sort of without our effort? And and I do think there's a paradox there that is hard to hard to. Unravel that in some ways it feels our own effort can only take us so far. Uh, and that out of this effort, this effort can sometimes seem like it feeds a, an ego or a, a wanting, wanting to achieve more wanting to acquire something. Um, A retreat I was leading uh, last month, somebody asked me this question about, um, does meditation work uh, for narcissists Um, or does it just give them one more thing to try to be good at? (laughs) Um, And I I didn't really know the answer, Um, but I think I have come across people who seem to be treating sort of meditation and practice as one more status symbol, one more thing to, to acquire. Um, at the same time, I think it, uh, there can be a humbling quality to meditation because we do realize, we come face to face with our own limitations. And I think like so much uh, in life and in practice, it really does come down to finding this balance that you can can be too focused on effort and you can be not focused enough on effort. You know, it does take some work to come to a temple like this. It takes some discipline to to sit and meditate. You mentioned having sort of moments of, of perhaps realization even sitting at a stoplight. But you have to be paying attention to even be receptive to that moment, I think. Otherwise, it, it just passes you by. So I think finding that that balance of putting in enough effort that we are being present, that we are, we are able to experience the practice while at the same time not getting so wrapped up in some sense of attainment or accomplishment that we're just feeding our ego. That's the the balance we're looking for. Uh, And that's sort of the paradox of effort and practice. And you see this in the old scriptures, you see stories of Buddha complaining that his students weren't trying hard enough. being lazy. Uh, we don't tend to have this problem very much now, but he, there's many cases of him complaining that his students were sleeping too much, just, you know, laying around. At the same time, there are stories in the scriptures of people who were sort of trying too hard, who were so desperate to achieve awakening that that seemed to stand in their way. Uh, because they wanted it as some sort of badge of honor. Uh, so there was that sort of ego impurity in their practice uh, that that effort was feeding. And only when they gave up did they actually experience awakening. So it's difficult.
1: Maybe there's, I have been looking for the way mm. to become the disciplined person, whatever it is, whereas we each have our own way. And so when I hear another story, it isn't that I have to be let in. I I need to appreciate it, but mine's different. Yes. And so to acknowledge that. And so for myself, uh, the attraction is my discipline. Mm. Yes. Drawn to it. I think that's right. The discipline is a gift.
0: Yes, we each have to find our own way.
1: Yeah.
0: And that was really, I think those were the Buddha's last words is to be our own lamp, to light our own way. Uh, I think That's what we have to do. Other questions or comments? Anyone online like to ask anything? Yes, please.
2: Thank you. Um, I've been coming to Jokoji for some years now, mostly to do with um, helping in the garden. And uh, uh, I don't know how to take the next step. I do. I have to ask someone, or I mean, I there's. It's not like things are laid out. Uh, so I don't know what the next step is, mm. and. Can you help? <laughs> or do I just go to the dog or who someone and say, hey, <laughs> give me a step?
0: Well, that would be one way. Um, is uh, We have four guiding teachers here now at Jokoji. Uh Our previous guiding teacher was Michael Newhall. And when he retired in uh, June, I think it was, uh, we decided it would take four of us to replace him. Uh, And so there's now four, myself, Doug, uh, Carolyn, and Paula. Um, And so certainly one way to uh, to continue your practice might be to Reach out to one of the teachers and um, and discuss what what it is you mean by that and what you're what you might be looking for. Um, I do think it's very valuable to work closely with a teacher, um, in part just because of uh, almost a level of accountability, uh, but in part also to get real guidance at times um, to get advice. Another one of the paradoxes of our practice is that in some ways, of course, it's a very solitary practice when you're sitting uh, zazen, whether you're at home or, or here at the temple, in some ways you couldn't be more alone. You know, you're not talking to anyone. You're not looking at anyone. You're staring at a wall, you're kind of you have no companion other than your own mind. And yet at the same time, it's uh, really from the beginning, from Buddha's, Buddha's time, it's always been practiced in groups and it's often been valuable to work with a teacher. Uh, so certainly that would be one, one approach. Um, and just, yeah, coming to more of our, retreats, sessions, those sorts of things um, can be very helpful. Uh, but as we've talked about, I think he, each, each path looks different. So the next step for you is not going to be the same as what the next step was for me or for Larry or Drow, any of us. But maybe uh, talking to a teacher could help you find the right next step for you. Okay, thank you. Yes,
2: please. Um, thanks very much, Dan. Um, uh, like like Larry, I've got a lot of things swirling around, and uh, and also I want to uh, acknowledge that at this moment this particular mind is uh, somewhat agitated or um, at a number of levels. So I'm coming from a place of agitation. So uh, forgive me if things are, uh, forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a couple of things really stood out. Um, One was the idea of balance. And that, that most often, it's easier for that to arise in an environment of happiness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, this question of attention, you know, attention to, uh, I'm hearing that I must always pay attention to the goings-on the things I'm sensing. And that thing that you said about one of Buddha's last words about um, being be a lamp to ourselves, can you, can you give me the exact words on that again? Or, you know.
0: Yeah, to be your own lamp.
2: To be your own lamp. In this moment, I'm taking that to the encouragement to um, in creating an environment of happiness from or a balance, rather, to, to use that lamp, that light to see whether or not I'm cultivating a happy situation for my own set of conditionings and circumstances. It's, you know, there's no there's no fixed way. There's only the balance that this particular creature can find and refind and refind and refind over and over again as the things knock me off balance. Um, another thing that arose was um, you mentioning uh you know, sitting practice and how we uh, very commonly we do our best to create an environment that is sort of free of distractions, so that we can just be, uh, you know, find some stillness and pay close attention to either our internal self or external self. It's kind of hard to control where the attention goes, and maybe that's one of the um, things we're we're trying to hone. You mentioned honing. The attention muscle, and, uh, being aware, I guess, of where the attention is pointing, and 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 uh, checking in with oneself, with myself, to see whether or not where my attention is. Is um, yeah, it's hard. It's, I'm getting a bit lost because I, I feel that if there's this voice in me that's always doing this executive judgment about whether or not I'm putting my attention in the right place, that that can be kind of a emphasizing mind too much rather than just letting things come in.
1: Um,
2: uh, I thought I had something useful to say. It's slipping away. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Okay. Right, as you mentioned he reminded me that we often do create a situation that's sort of free of distraction so that we can do that very uh, simple sitting practice, which I find to be very analogous to like a a person who works in a gymnasium who's going to, they are going to work on some particular moves, but um, to do the first bits of learning or practice, they set up a, some crash pads, you know, they, they create a slightly easier environment where mistakes don't have such a high um, cost. Mm-hmm. But as you said also, we practice in that constructed environment for a while so that, that uh, we can take that home detention thing out into the world, right, and maintain our own balance and support the balance of others around us as we move through the world and it occurred to me that when we create when we create this situation like a zendo it's not just that we're minimizing things that are going to happen around us there's also this very clear social construct which signals the people around me that don't be offended that I'm not turning my attention to you Mm
1: -hmm.
2: don't be offended that I'm that I'm not um, seeking your approval or attention in this moment, although I know you're present. Because that's so much of what usual everyday social interactions are often about. And it seems moving out in the world, I'm remembering that many times I would like to be um, remaining still and just sort of really not... hmm, One of the things that I work on personally is I'm very responsive to other people, to their presence, to their needs, to to my guesswork about what their needs are going to be, Um, whether or not it's an individual or a group or the Sunday program. And it's, um, well, I'm completely lost. I'm lost. I, uh, thanks for for listening I, I don't know that I've come up with a question or a... all came from a place of agitation so not of balance <laughs> Thanks thank you. <laughs> I, I think what you said about the the social
0: sort of construction of the of the Zendo is is really interesting and I do think that that's true um, you know of course in theory we could sit in silence anywhere. Uh, but it's tricky to do it in, in most environments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll sometimes do walking meditation uh, like at work, but you, you can't do it this slowly. If you do it this slowly, people will think something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to do it a little more quickly uh, so that people won't, won't bother you because otherwise they'll think, uh, you know, that there's, it just, it's too strange. Uh, similarly, you know, you can eat in silence at home, or you can eat in silence here at the temple. But if you try to eat in silence sort of elsewhere, you know, people may try to talk to you, and then we'll find it rude if you don't want to uh, talk back. So we do have this sort of agreement among ourselves when we're practicing together that the practice is what's coming first, and that that's what we're trying to accomplish, and we're not we're not ignoring each other. Um, we're not uh, being rude, but we just have this agreement to try to just support each other in our practice. And it is one of the things that's very special about coming to a place like this. Um, you know, one of the things I appreciate about retreats and things like that is, you know, when we sit a retreat together, in a way, we're making a uh, even stronger agreement to support each other in practice and and uh, over a long period of time. Um, And it is one of the challenges out in the world is that um yeah people might not know that we're practicing Mm -hmm. and
2: so might misunderstand uh why we're responding the way we are and i'm remembering now something that i that i wanted to get to which is it occurred to me that as i move in the world and i see people that are maybe not responding with the usual way or they're there to give them the space to practice to to not demand their attention for just reassurance sake you know to is that yeah like if i see a person walking sort of slowly to you know it's okay for me to think well are they seem in distress do they is there any reason that i think i need to announce myself to them but I guess the point is to I want to ask myself to be more aware of out in the world seeing situations where folks may actually be practicing secretly, secretly within, you know, like a fool. Uh, I don't know that I don't remember how that goes exactly, but but to disturb that, you know, to, to insist that people stop that to just make me feel a bit better about myself is uh, something I've done in the past. I'm realizing I could be a little more, grant a little more, a wider birth in a sense, out in the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, we never really know the inner life of another person. We never really know what's what's going on and what's motivating them. Um, And I've certainly found, you know, now that more people know that I practice and that I'm a teacher, you know people will talk to me about their practice, who I had no idea were were practicing in some way. Um, and so, yeah, you don't you don't really know what what is uh, what's causing a person to act the way they are. and uh, and it is very easy to make assumptions um, rather than just kind of letting them letting them be, letting them do whatever it is they're doing, whether it's practice or something else.
1: Thank you. Any more thought, if I may? Sure. Um, I was just thinking maybe there's a place for noises in. <laughs> when I listened, when I listen to the news, that's when I need to stop and go inside and wait. Yeah. And not to avoid my tendencies. I don't want to turn it on. But I know there is something there that is that I'm dodging. Hmm. So allow myself to be disturbed and to go into that disturbance and wait in here and knowing that something will come together, however you say it. So yeah. yeah. That works for me.
0: Thank you. That's probably the about the end of our time. Um, Thank you again, uh, those of you who are here, those of you who are online. Uh, appreciate you joining us this morning and uh, yeah, taking some time to pay attention together. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive your support helps us to continue to offer the dharma for more information about jikoji please visit us on the web at jikoji.org